Romans chapter 2, beginning at verse 17. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you, then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. This is the word of God. If there's one thing our culture loves right now, it's diversity. Uh, diversity is changing Many of the things that we see, in around, see around our world, it's changing the hiring practices of big corporations. We now have things like gender quotas. Diversity is changing the shape and look of TV shows and movies. Even the Wiggles have had a diversity makeover. And, and the reason our culture loves diversity is because our culture hates, to an extent, discrimination. And so we're trying our darn best to make sure that no one is discriminated against. I'll leave it to you to decide whether these attempts are working. But did you know there is a kind of discrimination that is rife in the workplace that we're doing absolutely nothing about? Still today, there is discrimination happening and a Harvard University University study found was causing pay inequality that was comparable to the pay inequality caused by racial and gender discrimination. This is a form of discrimination so ingrained that many of us don't even notice that it's happening and that we do it ourselves. Do you know what it is? Physical attractiveness. Beauty. We discriminate on attractiveness. Study after study after study has found that good-looking people get offered more jobs, more promotions, and more pay than people like me. Isn't that crazy? It's not just in the workplace. This affects everything. We're so captivated by the external, things that are on the outside, that when we see a beautiful person, even without meeting them, we, we subconsciously attach 
other desirable characteristics to them in our minds. It's crazy how we do this. Now, if you're an ugly person like me, you're probably a bit outraged by this. Maybe even the beautiful people in the room are too. Because we know it's not what's on the outside that matters, but what's on the inside. And so we try our best to see that. We teach our kids to do the same. We say, don't judge a book by its cover. It's what's on the inside that matters. We live in a culture that is so focused on the external. And it was the same in Paul's day. In Romans 2, the Apostle Paul is addressing people who are so attached to the external, the external forms of religion specifically, that they had forgotten that with God, it's what's on the inside that matters. And so as we take a look at this passage together, it's my hope that we'll notice some of the ways in which we might feel tempted to do the same. To focus on what's on the outside, forgetting what really matters. So keep Romans 2 open. Let's pray and let's ask God to help us see the things that really matter. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you for your word and we pray now as we read it that you would give us the faith to believe it, that you would give us the will to put into practice what we learn from it. Lord, help us to see things as you see them. Help us to see this morning where we might be putting our trust in external things while ignoring the things that matter. Do that in us so that we may see things rightly and truly and that we might truly be your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, just a note, we will have time for questions at the end. I, if I forget to mention at the start, you're not ready. Uh, if you've got a question, we'll have a chance to ask it at the end. But if you need catching up, uh, we're right in the first section of Paul's letter to the Romans. It runs from chapter 1, verse 18, right through to chapter 3, verse 20. And in this section, Paul is wanting to show his readers that everyone needs the gospel because everyone is guilty of sin. No one is righteous. And therefore, if we want to become righteous, if we want to have a right relationship with God, we need a righteousness that is received, that is given to us, not one that we earn. And so Paul has been methodically working his way through different groups of people, showing how they too are facing God's wrath. And so he pointed first in chapter 1, 18, following, he pointed first to those outside the church. And he said that God's wrath is being revealed against the godlessness and wickedness of man. Because even though through creation they know there is a God, they refuse to acknowledge him as God. Last week, Paul turned his attention to those inside the church and he said to those who thought that maybe they are righteous. 
to those that look, tended to look down on sinful people. Those who might be like the Pharisees in Jesus' parable, who thank God that they are not like other men. And Paul's message to them that we saw last week was, you too. He says, don't think for a second that you will escape God's judgment because you too are guilty of the very same thing as they out there. Well, now we come to verse 17 of chapter 2, and Paul is very much still following this same argument, but now he turns his attention specifically to Jews. It seems that there were Jews within the church who had the idea that everything that Paul had said before didn't apply to them. God's wrath was certainly being revealed against those outside the church, but not on them. They were Jews. They were God's chosen special people. They had the law. They had circumcision. They had things that set them apart from everyone else. They're not like them. Sure, God's wrath should come on the Gentiles, but not on us Jews. We're safe. These Jews were relying on the external markers of Judaism to save them from God's wrath. And Paul's message for them is that it's not what's on the outside, but what's on the inside that matters. To help draw this out in verses 17 to 20, Paul addresses his audience and he gives them a series of if statements. You'll see them there in your Bibles. He says, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law. And and on he keeps going. He's layering all these things that Jews took great pride in. He says, if you are convinced that you are a guide to the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, Because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Paul's layering up all these things that Jews took great pride in. And and these things are, are true. This is what it is to be a Jew. People who rely on the law and boast in God. The Jews are people who delighted in God's instruction. They were the people who God had called to be a light to the nations. These things that Paul is saying are all true and good. But then in verse 21, he lands his punch. He says, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? For for people who prided themselves on having God's law and who prided themselves on holding God's law up as the perfect standard for others, it's astonishing that they could forget that God's perfect standard also applied to them. But this is what they've done. They're not practicing what they preach. They're like the people that we saw earlier in chapter 2. They're judging others while being guilty of the very same things. They're being hypocritical. 
And so Paul continues to interrogate these self-righteous Jews. He says, you who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? There's a bit of confusion about that one, what Paul actually means there when he talks about robbing temples. We do have some evidence of uh, some Jewish metal workers who got involved in, in making and selling statues for other people to worship. And so while they would certainly not worship these statues themselves, they were happy to accept idle money to help other people to sin. Perhaps that's what Paul's kind of referring to. They're robbing temples. They're profiting from other people's sin. But whatever he means here, uh, the overall message is really clear in verse 23. Because here Paul lands the knockout punch. You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Jews took such pride in the law. And and that was not misplaced. They should. If you flick over just to the start of chapter 3, Paul says that the Jews had been entrusted with the very words of God. He says that's an incredible privilege that they have. That a Jew could say, we have the words of God given to us. It is good that they loved the law. But the law is only useful if you know how to use it. You all know the story of the Titanic and the catalogue of errors that so errors and oversights that led to this massive loss of life all those years ago. You know about the design flaws in the hull, the high speed it was travelling, the iceberg warnings that went unnoticed. But when it comes to the lifeboats, you've heard not only were there not enough lifeboats for all the people on board, but even for the ones that they did have, the crew didn't know how to use them, how to deploy them. And so at least two of the lifeboats floated away without a single person on them. There weren't enough for everyone, and two of them just floated away empty because user error. Lifeboats are only useful if you know how to deploy them. Well, in the same way, the law of God was only useful to the Jew if they knew how to use it. And the one thing that the law should never have done is make them self-righteous. The one thing the law was never intended to do was to put the Jew, pat the Jew on the back and say, well done, you made it, you did it. It was never meant to do that. It was meant to do the exact opposite of that. It was meant to expose them, to show them just how sinful they are and how desperately in need of a saviour they are. But these Jews weren't reading the law for themselves. They thought that having the law was enough. Well, in verse 25, Paul changes course slightly and he considers another one of the things that Jews trusted in, one of the external things that Jews pointed to for their their safety, for their protection from God's judgment on sin. 
was another thing that they missed the point of entirely. It was circumcision. You see, circumcision was the sign that God gave to Abraham, a sign of the covenant, a physical marker that set Jews apart from the nations and which served as a reminder that they belonged to God. Now, we still use covenant signs today. Of course, there is baptism. But one that you might be a little more familiar with or a little less confused about is the wedding ring. A wedding ring is a sign of a covenant, a physical token which signifies the marriage that exists between a husband and a wife. But while the ring on my finger shows you that I'm married, everyone knows that the ring is not enough. Imagine for a second a husband who cheats on his wife and is caught in the act. It would be completely insane if the husband were to say to his wife, oh, no, 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 honey, don't worry, don't worry. It's not what it looks like. See, I'm still wearing my ring. That would mean nothing, would it? The, the ring itself does not constitute the marriage. For a marriage to be real, you need love, you need faithfulness. The ring is only a sign. Well, in the same way, circumcision itself was, was never the thing that made someone belong to God. It was only a sign. But the problem is that many Jews were so committed to the sign of circumcision that they had lost sight of its significance. To the point that some Jews actually believed that circumcision itself was enough to save them from God's judgment. There was a Jewish teacher named Rabbi Levi, and he's reported to have said this. He says, In the hereafter, Abraham will sit at the entrance to Gehenna, that is, that's hell, and he will permit no circumcised Israelite to descend therein. There's a rabbi saying, Abraham is going to be at the gates of hell, and he's going to make sure that no circumcised person goes to hell. The only situation I can think of where pulling your pants down in front of someone will actually get you out of trouble. But it's this kind of thinking that Paul addresses in verses 25 to 29. And his message is simple. Physical circumcision is only useful if it brings with it the commitment to obedience. Verse 25, he says, Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. In verse 26 and 27, he goes one step further by saying that it would be better to be uncircumcised and obey the law than to be circumcised and not. He says, the one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who even though you have the written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker. It's all because it's not what's on the outside but what's on the inside that matters. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision 
is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. You see, a, a truly Jewish person, to be a true person of God, is not just to have the written law and physical circumcision. A true Jew is someone who has been changed on the inside. Someone who has had their heart circumcised. Someone who has had their hard heart removed and has been changed to love God rather than hate him. A true Jew is someone who... Sorry, a true Jew is not someone who tries to change themselves by obeying the law, but someone who is changed by God's Spirit so that they can obey Him. A true Jew is not seeking to please people, but God. Which means that a true Jew need not be ethnically a Jew at all. You too can be a true Jew. That's Paul's message to the Jews. What really matters is not the law that you have received and this circumcision, this physical sign. What really matters is the inward reality to which these things point. Do not think that by simply having the law or being physically circumcised that you will be spared God's judgment on sin. The wrath of God is being revealed against the godlessness and wickedness of people and that includes the Jews. He says, even you, even the Jew are guilty. Now because they have the law, they will be judged according to the law and the law will testify clearly they are guilty. But now the question is, what does all this mean for us? There's quite a difference between the ways that Jewish people related to God under the Old Covenant and the way that you and I relate to God under the New. And yet, the very same issues that existed for the Jews then, well, they exist for us now. Because just as the Jews did in Paul's day, it's entirely possible for Christians to rely on external observances as the grounds of their justification. To put it more simply, sometimes we think we are right with God because of some external religious observance. We get tempted to think that we're right with God because we were raised Presbyterian which I know doesn't actually include that many people in this room. Or we believe that we're right with God because we go to church. We believe that we are saved because we have been baptised. Now as good as all of these things are, none of them are enough to turn away God's wrath against our sin. Because they're all just external. During university, I worked at Rebel Sport, and one Christmas, I remember seeing one of my co-workers uh, telling a mother that this particular bodyboard that she was trying to sell her repelled sharks. Now, I don't know what's worse, 
the fact that my co-worker just straight up lied to this woman, or the fact that the woman believed her. They're both terrible. But either way, this woman left the shop, bodyboard under her arm, delighted that she had something that was going to protect her precious children that summer. I hope she didn't find any sharks. Uh, Do you see that's almost exactly what many Christians do? We carry around our church membership or our baptism or our experience of conversion or that time we went overseas on mission or our involvement in ministries or our recent moral performance and we latch on to these good things but we load them up with expectations of something that they were never promised to give. We carry these things around like a bodyboard that we think repels sharks and we think, I'm safe. God will be pleased with me. But friends, one day we'll find ourselves in the shark-infested water and discover that all the externals count for nothing in the face of God's wrath. Even you, if you call yourself a Christian, Even you, if you attend church most Sundays, even you are guilty of sin and facing God's wrath. And that's what Paul is spending two whole chapters to to get into our heads. We are deserving of God's wrath because we too have refused to acknowledge him as God. We're not immune. We are no different to anyone else. We need a saviour. We need Jesus to turn away God's wrath against our sin. We need God's Holy Spirit to enter us, to transform us from the inside out, to, to expose our sin and make us aware of our sin, to circumcise our hearts, to mark us as his, to make us the true people of God. People who aren't seeking to please the world, but who are seeking to please him. Enabling us to take hold of the obedience that comes from faith. Brothers and sisters, that is what you need. That is what I need. Let me pray. Gracious God, we can find it hard to take in the reality of your wrath against sin. Now, some of us are still in the the stage of thinking that it is unfair that you would judge us what seems so harshly. Lord, give us an awareness of just how wrong it is that we, along with every other person in this world, have refused to acknowledge you as God, tried to live as if we ourselves are God, and we have devoted ourselves to the things that you have created rather than to you. Lord, help us see that that makes us guilty 
And Lord, we pray that you would prevent us from latching on to any magic charm, any external thing that we think might protect us from your wrath. Expose us, help us see that we are equally guilty, equal deserving of your righteous judgment. Lord, grip us with that knowledge because it is only then that we will be gripped by the precious news that in the Lord Jesus there is a righteousness that is given, a righteousness that is received, a righteousness that we don't need to nor ever could earn. Lord, grip us with this gospel, we pray. Bring us to our knees, acknowledging our own sin, so that we might rejoice as you raise us up and call us your own, sealed by your Spirit, belonging to you forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.